0: I ain't saying I beat the devil, but I drank his beer for nothing. Then I stole his song. And you still can hear me singing to the people who don't listen. This is hell. All right, then. Neoliberalism imposed upon the people of Brazil by foreign governments and corporations, as well as evangelicals, conspiracy theorists, and members of the military, has destroyed what were the hopes of many poor Brazilians for a better life. Instead, an unjust justice system, with the help and guidance of assets from the FBI, weaponized the law and used it to oust the democratically elected leadership that was helping the poor, installing a new government in what many have called a coup. Since the government of President Jair Bolsonaro took power back in 2018, things have only become worse For the people of Brazil, especially the poor, and as the economy continues to suffer, the number of poor is growing at a devastating rate. Meanwhile, the publicly owned resources and services, which used to provide a safety net for all of Brazil, are being sold off, and not necessarily to the highest bidder or at the best price. With a pandemic making everything worse for Brazil, and a new variant of coronavirus has been found in Manaus, Brazil, a variant that has... ...increased transmissibility and can evade the body's immune system. A variant that just arrived in Minnesota. What was a rising global power has collapsed into disarray. In a few minutes we'll talk to This Is Hell. Correspondent and contributor Brian Muir, who edited and was one of the writers in the collection... ...Year of Lead, Washington, Wall Street, The New Imperialism in Brazil... It's the second volume in the series Dispatches from a Coup in Progress. Brian has a new film out entitled Dismantling Brazil, Bolsonaro's neoliberal agenda, which is available through Redfish. Uh, Brian is also co-editor of Brazil wire and Brian and Brazil correspondent for Telesur English's news program from the south you can follow Brian on Twitter at Brian M Telesur find Brazil wire online at brazilwire.com and Telesur English at Telesur English.net. Brian has been contributing to this Is hell for several years I don't know Eight years maybe now And we have dozens and dozens of our conversations with Brian Right now available at thisishell.com Including our most recent from November When Brian reported on Brazil's President Jair Bolsonaro's political party's Defeat in the recent municipal elections I'm your bitter, blind, broke, gap-toothed Radio show, live stream, podcast host Chuck Mertz If it's Tuesday, our producer should be Jess Lipka, but it is not It is Alex Jerry, because Jeff uh, is stranded on the south side in Chicago's Hyde Park neighborhood due to our very heavy snowfall, which is a very thick and wet snow. So, Alex, can you please remind us, what's this week's question from
1: hell for our listening audience? This week's question from hell is, what is your winning answer to this week's question from hell? I'm eliminating myself, the middleman in this situation. What is your winning answer to this week's question from hell? Which is, what is your winning answer to this week's question from hell? (laughs) The
0: person with our favorite answer to this week's question wins your choice of whatever This Is Hell merchandise you want. You can check out all of our merchandise right now by going to thisishell.com and clicking on support, where you can see all the ways you can contribute to completely listener-supported This Is Hell. Remember, without you, we got nothing, so thanks to all of you for your support. Thanks to Kevin B. and Ronaldo for showing their support this week. And thanks to Magnificent Me for their tithing like commitment to This Is Hell. You can leave your answer to this week's question from hell at our Facebook page, Facebook.com/slash This Is Hell Radio. You can direct message it to us via Twitter at This Is Hell Radio, or you can email it to either of us, Chuck at This Is or Alex at This Is Hell.com. But we must have your answer by the end of Thursday's show when we are announcing this week's winner. Following Jeff Dorchin and The Moment of Truth, Alex will be sharing more of your answers, or some of your answers, to this week's question from hell following our guest. You are listening to God's favorite radio show. Prove us wrong. This is hell. You can send us your comments on the show, guests or topic suggestions, to chuck at com, and if you do, we will likely share them on Air. So we got a couple of emails uh, in the last few weeks asking us to have Seattle City Councilwoman Shama Solant on the show. Shama is currently facing a right-wing-funded recall campaign after... Uh, from Jeff Bezos and other billionaires They're financing an oppos- uh, A recall They financed the opposition during a, a Recent election which Shama won And now they're trying to finance a recall Election for Shama Sawant Bezos is not happy about Shama's Plan to tax Amazon in order to Fund affordable housing and a Green New Deal However we have a rule that is more of a guideline on This Is Hell, and that is we do not have politicians Politicians or people from business on the show because those are the only people who ever seem to have access to the media, the big media. And This is not the media. This is hell. We do not want politicians and profiteers or their perspectives to dominate our discussion uh, as they do in the establishment media. So, as we did last year when we, when you responded with a, a resounding no and no, We yet again are asking listeners if, you know, should we have politicians on the show? Last year, when we asked, every person said no. Not one person said that we should. In the case of Shama Sawant, she's challenging Amazon and Bezos and the power of billionaires. So if we were to have a politician on the show, Shama would seem to fit the bill. So we got an email this week from Teresita, who writes, I just discovered your podcast. Thank you for keeping it real, being honest, and having a sense of humor so I can laugh as a way to catch my breath while living in our now. On the question of politicians being on your show, please educate us on these other parties. I have no idea what is beyond the multiple groups within the the Green Party, the Republicans and the Democrats. With this said, please base this request with the weight of a new listener. Many smiles, Teresita. Thanks, Teresita. We also got an email from Adam last week who said something similar to you. No to politicians, but yes to having a better understanding of new political parties and what they represent. You know, Groups like the DSA or Working Families Party, the Party for Socialism and Liberation. For that matter, what has the Green Party been up to anyway? Who knew our listeners would be looking for an alternative political party following the election of Joe Biden as president? Now, I'm not certain who we would talk to within those organizations to best learn what they are all about, but we're going to look into how we can find out more about these groups because, like you, I have no idea what differentiates one of those parties from the other. And we also got a guest suggestion from Richard D., who writes, I would like to suggest Umer Haq, As a guest on your podcast, he writes for Medium, Eudaimonia, and offers important perspectives on the state of U.S. society. Check him out, Richard. In fact, yesterday, Umair posted the article, The Dems don't need unity with the GOP. They need to punish them. Seeking unity with extremists and fascists like the GOP isn't just foolish, it's it's dangerous, which appeared at Eudaimonia. What the? with the name of that site. And that piece, Umer argues, you can have power or you can have unity, but not both. That's a lesson that many, including the Democrats, don't seem to understand. So thanks, Richard. Uh, appreciate the suggestion. It reminds me of how Trump was begging for unity last March, right when everyone was realizing the seriousness of the pandemic. Trump wanted everyone to unite around him, to not be critical of his administration's response to the virus. Meanwhile, in the same breath, he would attack the fake news. He'd call his opponents weak and his critics tiny. He wanted us all to somehow unite around his divisiveness, which made absolutely no sense whatsoever. Trump sucked all meaning out of the word unity, and now we have President Biden constantly repeating a meaningless word without telling us exactly how we perform this unity. That is being suddenly demanded of us again. You can find Umer Haack's article, The Dems Don't Need Unity with the GOP, They Need to Punish Them, at eudaimonia. That's E-A-N-D dot C-O. Now, now, I have, uh, I've got no idea how this happened, but Ronaldo, who does Rotten History, is somehow friends on Facebook with the former Gang of Four drummer Hugo Burnham, And Hugo seems to have strayed from his anarchist roots Of the late 1970s, early 80s British post-punk band Gang of Four One of my favorite bands of all time One of Thomas Frank's favorite bands of all time But here's what Hugo Burnham posts on President Biden's first day in office Can people just give Joe Biden an effing break for like 10 minutes A.K.A. stop whining that he's imperfect, that you didn't get the cabinet members you want. Remember, this is all on the first day of Joe Biden's presidency, that he should have done something else first, that it's not exactly what he said he'd do, that this, that that, that the other. F me rigid. Six months just for six bloody months. Hell, even three months. Just sit down and shut it. In return, I won't say another word about Nancy Pelosi's shoes. I have no idea what the reference is. But you got to wonder, what happened to a person who was in a band with lyrics like The poor still are weak, while the the rich still rule. The poor still weak, while the rich still rule. Who's now telling people to express themselves democratically by shutting up for three to six months and Not have any criticism of Biden whatsoever By the way, that's what Democrats told everyone to do in 1992 When Clinton was elected and he had majorities in the House and Senate Which were both lost in 1994 Because Clinton's attempts at bipartisan unity completely failed And didn't get anything done Then Obama repeated the exact same mistake in 2008 Losing control of both the House and Senate two years later again After attempting unity and failing at getting anything done again I guess Umer Haq is correct. You can have power or you can have unity, but you can't have both. You can send your thoughts, comments, and suggestions to us at at chuckatthisishell.com. And again, if you do, we will share them on air. Live from the United States, where the law is the crime, this is hell. Coming up, the government of President Jair Bolsonaro is dismantling Brazil. Alex will have some of your answers to this week's question from hell, which is, what is your winning answer to this week's question from hell? What is your winning answer to this week's question from hell? The person with our favorite answer to this week's question from hell gets your choice whatever, of whatever This Is Hell merchandise you want. You can find all of our merchandise by going to thisishell.com and clicking on support. You can leave your answer to this week's question from hell at our Facebook page. You can tweet it to us. You can email it to us. But we have to have your answer by the end of Thursday's show when we are announcing this week's winner, following Jeff Dorchin in the Moment of Truth, as we do each and every Thursday. Again, Alex will be sharing your answers to this week's question from hell following our guest. Another end of the world is possible. This is hell. There was a time not so long ago that Brazil was seen as a rising power on the world stage. Not only was its economy booming, but the lives of the people of Brazil were getting better. And not only for the rich, as it usually happens in Brazil, but the lives of the poor were actually improving as well. Things were going great until a Corrupt corruption scandal The ouster of two democratically elected socialist presidents And a rigged election that many call a coup Whatever brief shining moment Brazil seemed to have had Has now faded away or more accurately has been stolen Here to get us caught up on what is happening in Brazil And explain how it all fell apart Editor and correspondent Brian Muir Edited and contributed to the collection, Year of Lead, Washington, Wall Street, and the New Imperialism in Brazil, which is the second volume in the series, Dispatches from a Coup in Progress. Brian's on today to talk about his new film that's entitled Dismantling Brazil, Bolsonaro's neoliberal agenda, which is available through Redfish Documentaries. Welcome back to This is Hell, Brian.
2: Hey, Chuck. It's great to talk to you again.
0: Always great to hear your voice, my friend. I got to first let's get caught up on what's going on with the Brazil and coronavirus and your own health. There's a new variant of COVID that's been found in Manaus, Brazil, which has now been found in uh, the Minneapolis, St. Paul area as well. And it appears to be more easily transmissible, more evasive. So, first, I guess my most important question is how are you feeling? How's your health going? And what is the state of the virus in Brazil?
2: Well, Chuck, as you. As you know, you know, like I got really sick last February, before they were saying coronavirus had even arrived in Brazil. I had double, I, I had a dry cough every thirty or forty seconds on a flight coming back from Venezuela to Brazil through Panama, and double viral pneumonia that took months to get rid of. It took, I mean. The pneumonia cleared up but my lungs were like filled with gunk for like five months and i was taking all kinds of different steroids i'm pretty sure now in hindsight that that was coronavirus so i think i already have it that's the answer to your question about my health um regarding coronavirus here in brazil you know it's getting really crazy. Like I, I looked out the window the other day, I live above a little square in the entrance to a favela on the north side of Sao Paulo. There's a bar on it. And I looked out the window the other day and nobody was wearing a mask. For the first time since this lockdown first started last year, I looked out my window and saw zero people with masks on. A lot of people seem to have just said, you know, fuck it. And though, I mean, there's no more basic income relief. There. For, a, for a while, the federal government was giving people like um, 60% of minimum salary every month as incentive to stay home, and that's been cut off. And I think the average people are just, a lot of them are you know, like working class and stuff like that. They just can't justify staying in quarantine and lockdown anymore and they're just going out and doing their business as usual and it's the law here that you have to wear a mask on public transportation so people are just like wearing the mask on their necks as they walk to the bus station at the bus stop or the train station you know and the death rates back up to what it was at its height last august over a thousand a day still much better than the united states and we still have a public health system, so if I, if you catch it, at least if you have to go to the hospital, it's free. And the the vaccine, which is beginning to roll out, is also free. So there's some, some things as bad as it is. There's some things that still make it better than the U.S., even though it's
0: a much poorer country. You mentioned about uh, community organizations within favelas and how in your new film, and I want to get back to a follow-up question on our last interview first but uh, in a little bit but uh you mentioned this uh, community organization within the favelas and how they pro- provide health services how much better prepared were the favelas for the pandemic because they already had these community health service programs as a parallel to the government health service
2: well um that's a bit of a mischaracterization. They don't administer, I don't know any that administer health services. However, you know, there's thousands and thousands of favelas in Brazil, and only a few of them have organizations, community organizations, as good as the organization UNIS, which is highlighted in the documentary. UNIS is a kind of umbrella organization of 16 residence associations located in the largest favela in São Paulo, Heliopolis, which has about... 200,000 residents. I took Michael Brooks there and we went on community radio the, when he was down here interviewing Lula. And I used to work with them when I was at ActionAid, so I know, you know, I know those guys. What they're doing, they're not doing health. They they they're handing out about 15,000 month-long supply of groceries boxes to the poorest residents every month you know, uh, with help from international charity organizations and things like that. Because the favela organizations that I know that are doing good work, they've decided that like one of the best things they can do is strengthen people's immunity systems by making sure everyone's eating because there's a hunger crisis starting up again as well, you know. So that's one thing they're doing. And then they're also like distributing free masks and they're They're sending the sound car around every day reminding people to wash their hands and wear masks and keep one and a half meters distance from each other but it's hard in favelas because you have a lot of overcrowding in the housing stock like it it, you can't ask someone who lives in one room with eight other people to maintain two meters social distancing you know so that that's one of the reasons why it's hitting afro-brazilians harder than any other, you know, ethnic group in Brazil right now, because most uh, they're, they're Afro-Brazilians are more likely to be living in favelas than, than Brazilian whites. So
0: uh, be- before we uh, continue talking about what how community organizing works when within the favelas and uh, your new film, uh, Dismantling Brazil, uh, how did Bolsonaro how did the far right react to the U.S. Capitol siege? Did, did Bolsonaro say anything about it? How, how do you think it's affected the way that people in Brazil view the United States? Bolsonaro and his people were announcing
2: all over the Internet that Trump was going to stay in power and that there was going to be something big on January 6th. I do a web TV program that's pretty popular with Natalia Urban, who's a Brazilian journalist who lives in Scotland. In Portuguese, you know, we have about, I don't know, 15,000 viewers on our weekly show, and we were getting bombarded by what we call Bolsa Minions, who are supporters of Bolsonaro, with announcements that on January 6th something big was going to happen, They were uh, Biden wasn't going to take the presidency. And Bolsonaro was the last world leader to recognize Biden's. He only recognized Biden on the inauguration day. Really, he sent them this obsequious, groveling letter after, you know, publicly saying for 90 days or whatever on his Facebook lives every day that the election was stolen by the Democrats. You know, he bought in entirely to the all the conspiracy theories of Trump. You know, his son, Carlos who a lot of people think was involved in the assassination of Marielle Franco, is very close friends with Steve. I don't know if he's close friends. He he thinks he's a close friend of Steve Bannon. I don't think Bannon considers him a close friend. I think Bannon um, considers Carlos Bolsonaro to be a racially inferior Latino. And Carlos Bolsonaro thinks Bannon is a good friend. Nevertheless, all of Bannon's you know, conspiracy theories you see replicated by the Bolsa Minions down here. So, uh, and so what's happened is that all of Bolsonaro's followers really believed that Biden wasn't going to take office. And so the week Biden took office, Bolsonaro lost 11% of support. His support level dropped from 37%, a level that was being heralded in the New York Times and Guardian as a sign of huge wave of popular support for Bolsonaro, 37%, it dropped now to 26% in the week of the inauguration because he lost credibility with his own followers. He'd been lying to them the whole time that Trump was going to remain in office. So, I mean, we're already seeing the effects of, as much as I hate Joe Biden, we're already seeing the effects of Trump's ouster on politics down here. You know, now the center-right is openly turning against Bolsonaro, and they're talking about impeachment.
0: Wow, I didn't know that. So what has been the impact of Bolsonaro's political last time you were on, in uh, late November, you were, we were talking about how Bolsonaro and his political allies lost in uh, municipal elections. What does that mean for changes on the ground in everyday people's lives in uh, Brazil? How have how things changed in Brazil since Bolsonaro lost all those municipal elections?
2: Well, Bolsonaro's coalition doesn't believe in politics. You know, they don't believe in public policy. And you can see that very clearly in his uh, management of the COVID crisis. You know, it's just a disaster. Like they, It's like they're trying to spread chaos. Uh, and I think, I believe that's kind of like a Steve Bannon strategy, right? Because in a chaos situation, the elites can further rob Uh, The working class and middle classes as they've been doing in the U.S. during the pandemic, you know. Um, So what that means is just that even in situations where the mayors who took over might be center right, they're from parties that actually believe that there should be a public health system, that there should be a public education. They might believe in these kind of shitty public-private partnerships, but at least they believe that the state has a responsibility to deliver public services like health and education. You know, even if they believe in cuts and public-private partnerships, they don't believe that those systems should be completely dismantled. You know, so it's positive. And also, there's a you know there's some cities where genuine leftist uh, coalitions have taken over, which is good. It's going to be an interesting year in those cities, as well. But at the but it's hard to do anything about COVID. It's like the United States, you know, regardless of whether you have a good governor or mayor, if the president's coming on TV, telling his followers they don't have to wear masks, there's controversy, the vaccine, Bolsonaro said on to millions of followers that the vaccine could make women grow beards and all kinds of crazy stuff. It's gonna destabilize the response. And that's why Brazil's one of the worst countries in the world for COVID right now, and why these new mutations are starting down here that can affect the rest of the world, can affect the countries where the multinationals that have been benefiting from the coup are located. You know, it's a it's a world problem right now, the COVID response down here.
0: In your new film, again, it's called Dismantling uh, Dismantling Brazil, Bolsonaro's neoliberal agenda, which is available through Redfish Documentaries. Uh, In the very first line of the movie is Brazil was once a rising global star. Today it has descended into crisis under far-right President Jair Bolsonaro. Was Brazil's rising star simply because its national oil company was reaping in profits? Can Brazil's star only rise on profits made from climate change?
2: Well, uh, that's a good question. And uh, first of all, know that uh, Brazil has a very diverse economy. It's not like Venezuela, which relies entirely on petroleum. Brazil is the world's largest or second, first or second largest producer of some of the most lucrative commodities in the world, like sugar, coffee, beef, you know, soy. And it also has vast mineral resources besides uh, petroleum. So, no, the, it didn't, the boom wasn't just because of petroleum profits, and, um, and also it's worth remembering that during the 2008 world financial crisis, uh, Lula managed to keep Brazil out of it. It had one quarter of very slight negative growth, like 0.2% negative GDP, because of these Keynesian policies he implemented. And so what happened during this Brazil has underwent boom and bust cycles, you know, because of commodities. It's a, the economy depends a lot on commodities for 500 years. This was the first world commodities boom cycle, in which Brazil lowered um, income inequality, you know, and lowered, you know, significantly lowered poverty and made major structural changes to the education system, kept it out of a financial crisis, you know. Um, so I would say it's a mischaracterization to say that its economy depends on you know, climate change and oil. In fact, it's something that's also been smeared by a lot of faux-vanguard left writers and academics in the United States. They started smearing left governments in South America on the environment. I've seen these ridiculous smears on Bolivia and Evo Morales' administration. I mean, th- this is an administration in Bolivia that declared that the environment has the same rights as a human being in Bolivia. It was like a landmark advance in environmentalism. And still you see like all of these progressive papers and journals trying to accuse Evo Morales of being some kind of enemy of the environment, which is absolutely absurd. And in the case of Brazil, you know, uh, there was a several year period under Lula's administration in which Brazil was the world leader in reduction of greenhouse gases. And also, it was a world leader in climate change adapt- adaptation, through the um, construction and rollout of one million family rainwater capture systems in the semi-arid northeast, and all this work to like adjust uh, small farmers' output to to products that were like adequate for that environmental zone and things like that. So I, I, I mean, petroleum was important in the sense that. They allocated. Dilma Rousseff issued a presidential and executive order allocating 100% of the profits from Petrobras to public health and education, which was immediately canceled after the coup. So it was important, you know, in the sense that it helped finance expansion of the health and public education systems, you know. And so I, I just think it's unfair to try and pin on third world countries that are stuck in these. Parasitic core peripheral relationships with empire like United States and Western Europe that are responsible for most of the climate change in the world historically, that they should be blamed for like not leading the way and weaning off of fossil fuels. And the the people who have to lead the way on that are the ones who've caused the most environmental and damage to the world through their fossil fuel uses. And that's the United States. You know? So I I think it's actually really ridiculous. Because I've seen several leftist academics like trying to make a big fuss out of like Evo Morales not weaning off of fossil fuels. It's like, how do you expect a country with a GDP of 40 billion dollars, integrated in this imperialist capitalist system, to take a lead on that? When every country that ever tries to challenge, you know, petroleum hegemony, any country that ever has oil. Is invaded by the United States, or has its government overthrown by the United States? I mean, these countries do not have the amount of sever- sovereignty, sovereignty, that uh, you know, some people on the U.S. left give them, give them credit for. Because at any time in the last hundred years in Latin America, that any president tries to exercise sovereignty, the government's overthrown, or at least they try. Like they've been trying in Venezuela for 20 years. In Cuba for 60 years or whatever, so I, you know, it's a complicated question. I'm not in favor of petroleum. At the same time, I don't think that um, the Latin American left should be put on the spot for not leading the transition to renewable energy.
0: You know. In the film, you quote Patricia Farby, an administrative assistant at Union of Residents Associations of Eliopos uh, Unas, the group that you were talking about. And she says that for the government, poor people from the slums don't exist. Black people don't exist. How much do poor and black people exist in Brazilian culture? Do they also not exist in popular media? How much are black and poor people erased from... Uh, the people who do support Bolsonaro, do they simply not, uh, do, do they not exist in their worldview, in their reality, because they just never see them?
2: Um, that's a existential question, um, and I would say that there's a, like in the United States, like um, people walk down the street in Chicago every day and see homeless people and pretend they don't exist, I would say that that's pretty common, and Brazil, when people see homeless people, they walk by and pretend they don't exist and uh, they pretend that the favelas don't exist. So I think that's a historic problem in Brazil, maybe connected to capitalism. Um, As far as participating, like one major advanced structural change that happened during the PT years, uh, it was ratified during Dilma Rousseff's administration, is that the public university system, which is free, is legally required to allocate 50% of its slots of its enrollment to students who studied in public and uh, high schools and grammar schools, and that is vast majority Afro-Brazilians. Maybe 80% of the public school population is Afro-Brazilian, and in addition, they built 17 new public universities. So the the, the number of Afro-Brazilians in the university system quadrupled. And so now there's more and more Afro-Brazilians. Dis- and, and Bolsonaro has been unable to cancel it or undo it. So there's still some measures that are in place that causatively contributed. Like, okay, like um, Big Brother Brazil's been on the air for like 20 seasons now. And I just noticed last night, the new season starting. and it's like half Afro-Brazilian cast like the first time I've ever seen anything like this. So in terms of integration, things are still moving forwards despite Bolsonaro. But Patricia's correct in saying they definitely don't dialogue with poor people in any way because they they don't even care about government. They're just trying to dismantle everything. You know, so there's no there's no they've shut down all of the spaces for dialogue.
0: And she mentions that there's no dialogue between Bolsonaro and the poor communities. Are the favelas during election season, are they a political issue? Do they come up in political debates on on the national stage? Uh, Or is that something, another place where black and poor people may not exist in Brazil that is within political debate?
2: Well, first of all, let's keep in mind that only around 11% of Brazilians live in favelas. The way that it's presented in the media a lot in the Anglo is it would be as if 80% of Brazil lived in favelas and there's this tiny rich population that travels around in helicopters or something. Now, I literally saw an independent article saying this once. So it's only 11% of the population and there's no congressional districts or uh, alderman, aldermanic districts or wards. So most of the time, most of the candidates all live in the same rich neighborhoods. So the favelas don't come into play as a major issue most of the time, except among left-wing candidates who get most, of, you know, a lot of their votes from poor and working class. Uh, there, but there's a famous samba song called The Candidate by Bezerra da Silva when he just talks about like some well-dressed guy walking up into the favela, buying drinks for everybody, telling jokes. and It's like, yeah, this is the candidate. You're not going to see him for another four years. So, like, they all come into the favelas during the campaign and make all kinds of promises, you know, but then they disappear.
0: So Bolsonaro has employed, as your film shows, has employed austerity through budget cuts and privatizations of 17 different agencies and sectors within the uh, Brazilian government. Uh, Were voters that supported him voting for austerity? Did he promise austerity and they voted for it? Because so often, Brian, when austerity, when neoliberalism is employed, it's not something that Margaret Thatcher ran on. It's just something that she did once she got in office. It's not something that Tony Blair ran on. It's just something he continued when he was in office. So was Bolsonaro promising these austerity measures and privatizations?
2: No, of course not. And it's important to note that it was an illegitimate election because they illegally, in violation of international and Brazilian law, removed the leading candidate one month before the elections, who was Lula, who had over doubled the support of Bolsonaro in the polls. So the PT party was stuck you know, at the last minute, 30 days before the election, coming up with another candidate. And he still made it to the second round against all kinds of other candidates, even left wing candidates and everything and still got 44 million votes but the what bolsonaro ran on was hatred hate messages you know he was going to rid brazil he was going to purge brazil of leftists gays and communists and that was what he ran on that the communists had ruined brazil and that he was going to make brazil great again his campaign slogan was literally it was a, a revamp of Deutschland Uber Alice. It was Brazil above all, you know, oh, wow. and, and then since he took office, he's just sold off everything to foreigners. Like, it's not just that the privatizations are happening. It's that they're happening in a fraudulent way, like most privatizations. I mean, that's one of the big problems with this neoliberal dogma about privatizations being so much more efficient than the public sector. An example is that Paulo Guedes, the economic minister, who's an original, he's one of the most mediocre of the original Chicago boys who studied under Milton Friedman in the 70s at University of Chicago, they sold the credit card system to the national bank, Banco do Brasil, which is the largest bank in Latin America. They sold its credit card system to the company BTG Pactual that was founded by Paulo Guedes, at 12% of its, of its value. You know, pennies on the dollar. That's how the privatizations are taking place. Privatizing things off to cronies and foreign multinationals at pennies to the dollar. You know, so it's not even like, even from, even if you were literally Milton Friedman, you would complain about this.
0: Right, because they're not uh, selling stuff off to the highest bidder. They're just selling stuff off. To help out cronies, to help out their friends, instead of actually trying to help out the people of Brazil. Bolsonaro's uh, finance minister, you were just mentioning, Paulo uh, Guedes, you have historian Rajon Evler saying that uh, he's the same person who helped apply austerity measures under Augusto Pinochet in Chile. Did the U.S., Brian, did they ever stop engaging in interventionist politics in South America, or is this a resurgence of an abandoned policy from the 1970s.
2: No, they ne- They have never stopped. Uh, every, on average, since the 1890s, the U.S. has implemented a coup in Latin America every 2.4 years. So what if we had, we had, you know, we had attempts against Hugo Chavez starting almost immediately. The U.S. has been having coup attempts against Venezuela. The, like The U.S. never stopped holding coup attempts against Cuba. I mean, we know in the 80s, we had the Contras and all of this stuff. We had coups orchestrated by the US and dirty wars that killed hundreds of thousands of people in Nicaragua, El Salvador, and Guatemala. You know, in the nineties the, the US was involved in regime change operations. The the US overthrew the government of Haiti several times in the last, you know, thirty years or whatever. So, no, it never stops. It's just part of... And it doesn't... There's not really much difference between Democrats and Republicans on this.
0: So the selling off of these resources and services at really low costs, has this selling off created an uproar amongst the uh, Brazilian public? Is this one of the reasons that we are seeing the approval rating of Bolsonaro dropping?
2: Yeah, nobody... Like, um, the idea of neoliberal economic policy as an electoral issue died with Fernando and Cardoso, despite the fact that he's lionized in the New York Times, my least favorite publication I always complain about on your show. And in, you know, in other organizations in the US hides the fact that every time he's announced, he was going to try and run for president again, he's never pulled over like 4%, like the, the reason the coup happened in 2016. Was because the neoliberal center-right PSDB party of Fernando Henrique Cardoso lost four consecutive presidential elections. At this point, the international and national, uh, the international imperialist capitalist class and the national bourgeoisie comprador class came to the conclusion that a neoliberal candidate would never win an election in Brazil. And this is why they worked to overthrow the the first democratically elected woman, President Dilma Rousseff, on a budgetary infraction, which was a non-impeachable offense, which she was later exonerated for. She didn't even do it, you know? And it's why they arrested Lula. They worked, US Department of Justice, FBI, worked together with a public prosecutor's office in Curitiba to arrest Lula and remove him from the elections as he was the leading candidate, so that there would be a possibility of a candidate who wasn't talking about neoliberalism at all, just spreading hate messages, Steve Bannon style, to win to win an election. You know, and now he's in danger of being impeached because it's just turned into this disaster. It's like, um, what I understand, is that the way from Philip Age CIA diaries and stuff like and other stuff I've read over the years is that the way that the U.S. State Department works in terms of regime change in foreign countries is they have a list of desired outcomes, you know? Like the most desirable thing to happen is that there would be a free election and the neoliberal candidate would win, just naturally. One step below that is okay, we help the candidate we want in the election. Through, for example, in 2014, when David Axelrod's PR company agreed, former PR company agreed to run the social media for the neoliberal candidates, Ercio Neves, you know, and going down the list, like the last possible outcome would be, you know, military coup, you know, or I guess below that, even like invasion. So I don't think Bolsonaro was their top choice for what happened in Brazil. I think that they were hoping that Ercio Neves would win the election. When he didn't win the election, they were hoping that there could be a kind of coup, which they supported, and they really wanted a kind of, um, well-dressed and polite neoliberal candidate to win, but if it was between a fascist and um, you know someone who was gonna undo the privatizations, which is what Lula was promising as his campaign platform, they sided with the fascist, as they always do in Latin America, as they always did with Operation Condor and propping up all of these military dictatorships that had tortures that used to stick rats up women's vaginas, like Colonel Ostra, who Bolsonaro's sons walk around with t-shirts of. You know, Bolsonaro dedicated his impeachment vote to this guy, Uh, and the U.S. always ends up supporting these scumbags. So Bolsonaro is just one of many, you know, one of many horrible, torturous, genocidal maniacs who's been propped up by the U.S., like Papa and Baby Doc in Haiti, you know, um, Alfredo Stroessner in Paraguay, the Argentines who used to drug women and push them out of helicopters into the ocean that were supported by the U.S. And this is what annoys me when I hear liberals telling me I should shut up about Joe Biden sometimes. Joe Biden visited Michelle Temer three days after the coup against Dilma Rousseff to tell him that the U.S. gave him his full support. The U.S. democratically run government was the first government to officially recognize the coup in 2016. And so if I say something bad about Joe Biden now, I have relatives and friends, old friends on Facebook telling me to STFU and things like that. And it's just like, I'm sorry, like I don't live in the US. There's this kind of like liberal complacency in the US with all of this crap that the US does. No one, like liberals don't even protest against wars anymore in the US. It's It's just like, you know, I don't know, Chuck. It's just frustrating.
0: But... <laughs> it's frustrating here, too. You're thousands of miles away, and it's frustrating for you. I'm right here, and it's incredibly frustrating. In your new movie, Dismantling uh, Brazil, there's a clip of Bolsonaro saying how much he has done for agriculture with Brazil now exporting more than ever and growing more than ever. Yet you have farmers from the landless workers' movement who oppose Bolsonaro's policies. How can policies that lead to production and higher exports be bad for farmers?
2: Because it's monoculture. It's not food being produced to consume in the U.S. Not to mention the effect it's having on climate change, because all of this new production is inside former Amazon jungle. You know, during the PT presidencies, they played a balancing act. They supported agribusiness, expansion of agribusiness. They, they freed up... Um, genetically modified crops, which was a big mistake. However, they also provided equal funding to family farmers through all of these assistance programs, like one called PAA, which mandated that all public schools and hospitals had to buy all of their food for all of their meals from family farmers. So that, unlike the U.S., where the Reagan administration completely destroyed family farmers in the at the time when John Cougar Mellencamp made that song Rain on the Scarecrow, it's a really good song, destroyed it. When Dilma Rousseff was removed from office, 70% of the food consumed by Brazilians was produced by family farmers still. And that percentage is lowering a lot. And this, you know, this monoculture is just devastating. It's just luxury products, sugar, you know, sugar is not going to save anyone from starvation or, or, you know, soy for cattle or whatever. And beef is like the least productive way of using land in the world, you know, beef is a big producer, a big factor in climate change. So that, I mean, that's what they're talking about. Like the, I had a really interesting conversation with the Landless Peasants, Landless Workers Movement guy, Valdir Zinho, in which he was just telling me like, to a family farmer, soil is a living organism. It's full of little plants and bugs and insects and things like that, and the way that monoculture works is they just kill the soil first, and then they kill everything in the soil, and then they start feeding chemicals into it so they can grow specific crops. And it's just like, it's making he just said it's making everyone sick. He said the same companies that are producing the pesticides are producing the drugs that people consume in pharmacies to counteract the effects of eating too much industrialized food.
0: And it's amazing, as you point out in the film, how hunger is increasing throughout Brazil, while here you have Bolsonaro saying, yes, but if you look at these numbers, our exports are through the roof and our production is through the roof, without pointing out that... Hunger is also through the roof The film features investigative uh, reporter Bob Fernandez Who mentions U.S. involvement in the corruption scandal that ousted President Lula And how U.S. involvement and reaction in the case was far more than what Fernandez believes is legal With 17 or 18 active FBI agents and the anti-corruption director for Latin America working on the case How is this kind of collaboration Illegal. Whose law is being broken? Is it Brazil's? Is it the US? Is it international law? Whose law was being broken in the Operation Car wash investigation that led to the ouster of President Lula?
2: Okay. Um, first of all, Bob Fernandez's whole interview from the film, which I co-produced with Michael Fox, is available on Brazil Wire. We published it yesterday. It's really interesting. It talks about a lot of stuff. I won't go into it. I'll answer your question here. Basically, When Fernando Henrique Cardoso was president, he signed a treaty with the United States enabling joint investigations between the Brazilian federal police and public prosecutors and the U.S. Department of Justice. However, um, uh, there's a series of protocols to guarantee sovereignty, uh, national sovereignty, which have to be met in any cooperative Investigation. In other words, all communications between local Brazilian police and U.S. DOJ have to pass through the, you know, the Brazilian Secretary of State's office, and, and have to be, you know, monitored and read and approved of. And so, what we know from a a speech that U.S. Assistant Attorney General Kenneth Blanco gave at the Atlantic Council in 2017, which you can watch online, he's bragging about how a key element of their of the arrest of Lula which he was also bragging about was that they had they maintained constant informal communic- communications with the public prosecutors in Curitiba that bypassed these protocols that slowed everything down so the operation was more agile because of these informal communications well that that's a violation of the treaty on both sides, on the U.S. and the Brazilian side. Okay, and that alone, that speech alone was used as justification to file a case for dismissal of all charges against Lula from Lava Jato, which is still like bouncing around in the court system, you know, the conservative court system. So, I mean, it's not like Bob Fernandez's opinion, like it's an actual fact. You can watch video in which, you know, DOJ, leader is talking about it and there's all kinds of other evidence because when the intercept released all of these th- hundreds of hours of social media chats between members of the prosecution and the judge who was overseeing the case which is highly unethical judge Sergio Moro who became Bolsonaro's justice minister it also gives all there's all kinds of evidence that this these communications were going on illegally with the
0: with the FBI and things like that. So uh, what is the connection then? Because you, you, in your film you talk about this at length, about the rise of fascism within Brazil as well as the implementation of Bolsonaro's uh, plans for uh, our policies of austerity and privatization. What is the connection between rising fascism and austerity? How are the two linked? How do they work together?
2: Well, austerity is the goal of the U.S. for all of the third world, and the IMF too has been pushing it, and Western Europe, because it makes it easy, easier, for integral state actors, the corporations that support that prop up these right-wing governments we have, in the U.S. Uh, it makes it easier for them to suck all of the natural resources out of the country, you know, and the agricultural production, everything. Uh, the the project, the neoliberal project, is electorally unfeasible. It just doesn't work. Even you saw they tried it in Argentina with Macri and it just collapsed. It doesn't work. So, you know, the, uh, when the electoral project doesn't work, the only way that you can uphold this economic project is down the barrel of a gun, which is what we have with Bolsonaro and his military coalition that's running the country right now.
0: So what happens when the law becomes lawless, if you will, Brian? When the uh, when corruption, uh, like corrupt, in, corruption investigations are actually corrupt? What happens when the justice system becomes unjust?
2: You know, you just you have a breakdown in the rule of law. I mean, there, there's a interesting C-SPAN video with Hillary Clinton in 2008 when she's saying that when it comes to democracy in Latin America, elections aren't enough. The U.S. has to help strengthen independent judiciaries so they can fight in the battle of corruption. So what she means when she talks about strengthening judiciaries, she's talking about the one branch of government that normally in Latin America is never elected. Judges are never elected in Brazil. It's an elite white position that's that's obtained through passing civil servant exams that are rife with corruption, all right? So it's the one branch of government that's not democratic and that's dominated, Brazil's 56% black, but the judiciary is 99% white, okay? So that that's, so this is what happens, you know, when, when you see the U.S. building up corruption investigations all over Latin America in partnership with these Wealthy elite judiciaries people who grew up with servants washing their underwear for them who pay They probably paid less than minimum wage and harassed You know, that's that's who they're turning the when the rule of law breaks down It's a section of the elite that takes over the government. You know, that's what we have. I mean This happens all over the I mean, we almost had it in the US right now, too, right? so I mean you see what happens when when the rule of law breaks down, you have people like swarming your Capitol building with antlers on or whatever, <laughs> trying to interrupt the electoral college vote. That's the type of situation. People, a bunch of people on
0: meth. <laughs> Brian, it's always great to hear from you We've been speaking with Brian Meir Who edited and contributed contributed to the collection Year of Lead, Washington, Wall Street And The New Imperialism in Brazil Which is the second volume in the series Dispatches from a Coup in Progress Brian has a new film out entitled Dismantling Brazil, Bolsonaro's neoliberal agenda Which is available through Redfish Documentaries You can follow Brian on Twitter At Brian M Telliser, And you can find out more about Tellisur Where he is a correspondent At Telesur SirEnglish.net You can find many of our Interviews with Brian at our website Thisishell.com when you search on his Name, Mir, M-I-E-R And we rarely Rarely, rarely, if ever Brian, ask you a Question from hell, the question we hate to Ask you, hate to answer, our audience is going to Hate your response, but I have such A good question from hell for you That I gotta ask you A question from hell, and here it is, Brian It says, at your video, when I was watching it on YouTube, it says at the bottom, "Redfish is funded in whole or in part by the Russian government." So, Brian, are you a Russian spy? Does it pay well, and can you get me a job?
2: Yeah, God, I have, you know, I have to explain this to relatives. I too much <laughs> MSNBC. Redfish is based in Berlin, and it has editorial independence, and it gets funding from. RT, you know, Chris Hedges has a show on RT. Is he a Russian spy? I mean, our film is pretty anti-Donald Trump. So I guess if you watch it and you see that Russia's funding an attack on Donald Trump, I mean, that's probably the type of thing that would make Rachel Maddow's head explode.
0: (laughs) So uh, you're saying that Chris Hedges is a Russian spy? Is that what you're getting at?
2: You know what? If I were ever a Russian spy, I would want to be one like in the 60s. I don't think there's any charm in being a Russian spy these days.
0: (laughs) (laughs) No bridges to meet people at at midnight in a dark place while you're wearing a really fancy fedora.
1: Exactly. (laughs) That
0: sounds great. (laughs) All right, Brian. Always great to hear your voice. Thank you so much for being back on the show. Take care. Happy New Year and stay well, my friend. Take it easy, Chuck. Money is the root of all evil, and capitalism is all about money, so you do the math. This is hell. This week's question from hell is, what is your winning answer to this week's question from hell? The person with our favorite answer to this week's question from hell gets your choice of whatever This Is Hell merchandise you want. You can see all of our stuff right now by going to thisishell.com and clicking on support. You can leave your answer at our Facebook page. You can tweet it to us. You can email it to us, but we have to have your answer by the end of Thursday's show when we are announcing this week's winner alex how are listeners answering this week's
1: question from hell so far what is your winning answer to this week's question from hell what is your winning answer to this week's question from hell aaron b says elon musk is an a-hole adam a says decoding the final zodiac killer cryptograms advances q's revelations that ted cruz is the promised one i see benjamin c says 42 sw says this one that's the answer what is your winning answer to this week's question from hell? Warren L. says, make stupidity painful again. Walter B. says, what was the question again? Uh, Mark A.C. says, mind F. Sarah M., you know her, says, there should be no position in the public education where a person is given the title CEO. <laughs> what is your winning answer to this question from hell? Johannes B. says, no. Aaron B. says, choppo trap house is for, and then he uses a slur for our friends in the countryside, uh, no, no, our our slurs for our friends <laughs> on the countryside. There, uh, I'm not going to say it on the show. Those rubes. <laughs> yeah, you probably shouldn't. Uh, Fabio L says, "Get off Twitter." Krimsky K says, "Benjamin folded in the post." And finally, G, Gorilla G says, "A profoundly obvious tautology." Pithily phrased.
0: (laughs) We'll have more of your answers to this week's question mail on tomorrow's show. And again, we will be announcing the winner at the end of Thursday's show, following Jeff Dorchin and the Moment of Truth. You can see all of our merchandise right now at our website, thisishell.com. When you click on support, Alex, who is on tomorrow's Wednesday's live
1: one-hour show at 10 a.m. Chicago time, Right here at ThisIsHell.com. dot uh, com. Real excited to have Anna Clark back on the show to talk about her pr- new ProPublica piece, "The Unfinished Business of Flint's Water Crisis." We talked in her with her in twenty eighteen about her book on Flint, the Poison City. If you get a chance, that's a really great interview, and I'll probably be talking a lot about that one on uh, tomorrow's show.
0: Yeah, the interview was in twenty eighteen. Her book is "The Poison City: Flint's Water and the Ur- American Urban Tragedy." which won the Hillman Prize for Book Journalism and the Rachel Carson Environment Book Award, so... Definitely worth a read. We'll also have more of your answers to this week's question from hell. I'm your bitter, blind, broke, gap-toothed radio show host, podcast host, live streaming host, Chuck Mertz. Producing today's show is Alex Jerry. Thanks to Alex and thanks to Brian Mir for being our guest today. Also, thanks to Jess Lipka for everything that he does do on the show. We totally understand you being trapped on the south side today. So we'll see you back here again next Tuesday.